Welcome to At the Crossroads Church weekly podcast. Our hope is that you will grow in your walk with God and be blessed and encouraged in your daily lives as you listen. You can visit us at our website at atthecrossroads.ca. Why don't we all stand? We're going to pray before we dig into the Word here. It was wonderful. Well, Father, we thank you, Lord, that we're able to come together and to study your Word and to hear from you. God, we pray that you would speak to our hearts and open our eyes for truth. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. amen. So uh, today I want to share a message. We were just, um, uh, Pastor Peter, my wife and I were just at a pastor's conference, uh, just had a great, uh, great time. One of the messages was shared by John Finocchio. Some of you know Pastor John Finocchio. Uh, a great message. And uh, so as I was coming back, I, I basically I took his notes. So this message isn't original with me, but um, of course I've tweaked it a bit. Uh, but I am sharing from his, uh, his notes because it was so good I wanted to share it uh, with you guys. All right, so um, let's dig in. So today I want to talk about countering deconstructionism. Countering deconstructionism. This is an issue that we're dealing with in society today. And I want to, in this message, define what it is and talk about how we can uh, address it, okay? When a Christian says, I'm deconstructing, what does that imply? What does that imply? Okay, what are they really saying and where does all this stem from? Because we hear this term deconstruction, it's, it's becoming a popular term, and I want to highlight that. First of all, it needs to be said that deconstructing is different than someone saying, I have some major questions about my faith, about my life. So if you come to me and you say, I'm really struggling with... Uh, you know, understanding the baptism of the Holy Spirit, or I want to understand what true faith is, I want to understand theology, uh, and you have some questions, those are good things, right? It's good to question some of the things you've learned. And in fact, we see in Acts chapter 17, verse 11, it says, and the people of Berea, the Bereans, were more open-minded than those in Thessalonica. And they listened eagerly, say eagerly, okay? They listened eagerly. And the people of Berea were open-minded and those in Thessalonica, and they listened eagerly to Paul's messages, and they searched the Scripture day after day to see if Paul and Silas were teaching the truth. And so it's good, say it's good, to search the Scripture. All right? So we want to be eager-minded. We want to listen eagerly, but uh, we need to search the Scripture for ourselves. We're living in a day and an age where there's a lot of Internet preachers. There's a lot of, you know, televangelists. We see all this stuff on TV, and things are said that sound really, really good sometimes. And if we're not careful, if we don't look to the Word, how many know we can be deceived? Amen? And I say this even for myself. If I preach something, I challenge you to get in the Word for yourself like they did with Paul, and see if I'm teaching the truth. I mean, it's our responsibility as believers to do so. So I encourage people to study the Scripture for themselves. So having a hungry heart, teachable spirit, asking lots of questions until your faith is, is, is established is a good thing. Okay? But deconstruction, what is it? We're going to talk about it now. Deconstruction is a complete rejection of all objective biblical truth or anything that is rooted or grown out of Judeo-Christian ethics, okay? Uh, and, and this is something we see. This is the spirit. The Bible says the God of this world, Satan, has deceived people. And this is what we see happening across the globe. And this, this we need to understand. The Judeo-Christian ethics, right, uh, has been one of the major shaping factors of Western culture. 
I don't know, like we talk about North America, for example, people would come from all different countries because they want to come to Canada or they want to come to the States because they have freedom and they have uh, the freedom of expression, they have freedom of belief, there's, a, there's, a, there's a, a, an ethical system that makes sense and they're like, I just want to be part of this. And I want to say this, that God is a God of freedom. Amen. Even in the Old Testament, when we see all the judgment coming, he always said, you know, choose you this day who you will serve. I lay before you good and evil. You need to choose. And so so people came because of the Judeo-Christian ethics in our country. So when you hear about governments, uh, 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 governments are changing and saying that uh, all these changes are happening in government that does not make sense to us. It's likely the result of massive influence of deconstructionism because to those of us who have biblically informed, okay, we have a biblically informed worldview, anything stemming out of deconstructionism will not appear rational. So when, when you've grown up with the foundation of the scripture, it doesn't seem rational, some of the things that are being said, some of the decisions that are being made, okay? How many can agree with that? Okay, and so, but in point, this fact is that the idea of rationality itself is completely rejected by the deconstructionists because they're going to tell you that your rationale is racist, bigoted, misingenuous, and it's shaped by Christian thinking. That's what you're going to be told, right? And Jesus said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. So blessed are those who are persecuted because they're right. And, and, and this is one of the things we're, we're dealing with continually. And, and this goes right down to the level of our language. Our language is corrupted and therefore needs to be completely rejected. And the terms that we have used historically no longer carry legitimacy as we must change terminology in order to reflect the deconstructionist view. Deconstruction regard language as radically indeterminate and is not uh, slightly changed. They're not worried about tweaking it or slightly changing it. They want to destroy it. And that's the mindset of what's happening in the cultural norms of the day. So we hear terms like burn it down, you know, deal with it. And these are the things we're seeing. Let me give you an example. I, there's a pastor friend of mine in Kingston, and I've seen this even with my own children. The pastor friend has a, a, a grade 12 student. He's in, he's in religion class at a Catholic school. And so they're studying in the religion class, and in the textbook, the word chastity comes up. And this is what it says in the textbook. Chastity means the integration of sexuality within the person. It includes an apprenticeship and self-mastery. Christ is the model of chastity. Every baptized person is called to lead a chaste life, each according to his particular state of life. And so this student, who has a biblical foundation, said, this, I've never seen this meaning. This, this is different. So he said, okay, teacher, I'm going to show you what the definition in the dictionary says. So let's go to the next slide. Okay, the Oxford Dictionary says, the state of not having sex with anyone or only having sexual intercourse with the person you're married to, being chaste. And teacher, I looked in the Webster Dictionary and it says, abstinent from unlawful sexual intercourse, abstinent from all sexual inter intercourse, except, and then we see this example, the priest took a vow of chastity. And we see the Google's definition, almighty Google. The state or practice of refraining from 
extramarital or especially from all sexual intercourse. So he's saying to the teacher, excuse me, how can the textbook say something completely different than the dictionaries? And her, her answer was this. When you're younger, we told you this, but meanings of words change and evolve. Who says so? And so I feel sorry for the younger generation. I know I have, uh, you know, a, a student in college and, and two more in high school, and they're going up through the ranks, and their definitions of words are being changed. Things are being changed to, re, uh, to just, just to change everything. Now, here, here's the next one. Where does uh, deconstruction come from? Where does deconstruction come from? A man by the name, okay, of Jacques Derrida coined the term out of a postmodern mindset. Derrida called his challenge to the assumptions of Western culture. He called it deconstruction. On some occasions, Derrida referred to deconstruction as a radicalization of a certain spirit of Marxism. Other academics, such as Hedger and Hegel, Okay, and others similarly disposed, came into the academic frame in 1950 and held an abhorrence for the idea of absolutes. They hated the idea that there could be absolute truth. And so they believed that absolutes were used as a power play in order to maintain the status quo of society's established institutions. And it's sad to say that some institutions throughout history did use the word of God as a power play and shouldn't have. Okay, I understand that. The church is one of these organizations. Although people have been wary of power structures in both religion and government for hundreds of years, this would be a new attack upon not only government and power structures, but upon reality itself. So they believe that our worldview had been so shaped by these, the church, that it could not be erased, much like a permanent mark on a whiteboard. So the only answer is to completely destroy and deconstruct these ethics. And so, what are the signs of deconstructionism? The first one is, if we want to see if it's evident, is problematization. Problematization. It's one of the things they do to create wedges, okay? For I'll give you some examples. There is not enough women on, on stage, on the platform in a church, or not enough women working in a company. And that might be true, and that's a problem that should be addressed, okay? But they focus on the problem, and, and, it, it, and if, you, if you have an argument, they say you're a misogynist. They just accuse you. You're just a misogynist. You should have more women on stage, and you're trying to have a conversation. Or there's not enough people of color in your organization, so you're a systematic racist. And you're like, uh, no, it's just nobody applied, of, nobody applied for the job that was color, so I didn't hire. You know, you, oh, you're a racist. And there's no reason behind it. It's just accusation, accusation. And let's focus everyone's attention on the bad police officers. You know how many know that we have bad cops out there? But I know a lot of really good police officers, really good cops. So instead of saying, okay, we're going to deal with, you know, we're going we're to deal with the, the, the bad police officers and the corruption in this industry, and we're going to celebrate the good cops, we'll just, we'll just, you know, we'll just, let's defund the police. Let's tear it down. Well, who's going to be the peace officers? You? Right? So, the, so I'm not saying problems don't exist. I'm saying the attitude with this, this system is that you know, let's focus on the problem. Let's make it about the problem. Right? 
And if anyone doesn't agree, then they're a racist or a bigot or anything else. So problematization continues only to validate their views. It destroys the language, destroys the system, and on and on it goes. All right? So let's look at the seven characteristics of deconstructionalism. Here's the first one. I'm the one in charge. Right? I want to be in charge of my own life. Not anyone else. I'm the focus of interpretation. Reading is abjunction to the reader. So my truth is my truth, and I'm in charge of my life, and I won't submit my life to anyone else. Well, I don't know about you, but I, I'm glad there's a God who's in charge. Amen? Because, you know, I've messed up in my life, and I need him, and I need his grace. And I don't want to be in charge. All right? The second one, is, second one is what I think is true and feel is true, okay? What I think is true and feel is true is the most important thing. The third one is I'm sick of being told what to think and do, even to the point of trying to make sense because rationale is just a construct of Western civilization. So we, you know, we don't even want to reason about it. Number four, there are no absolute truths. And this would play into Western way of thinking. The concept is at the very core of all that is wrong with Western culture, this whole concept of absolute truth. Well, listen, the Bible, I believe, is absolute truth. And in the weeks to come, we're going to talk about why we should look to the Word of God, why it's, 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 you know, it's, a, it's a book we can trust. Most Christians don't even know the history. They don't understand the creeds. They don't understand how the book was, the Bible was put together. They don't understand, you know, all the, the you know, all the details of that that would help your faith, right? They don't understand that. Um, and I don't know about you, but the, there's one thing I've never seen. There's one thing missing in the Bible. You know what it is? My opinion. And that bothers people, man. They're like, I want, to get, I want my opinion. No, well, God's word is not your opinion. It's his opinion. And he's right. It's truth. So there are no absolute truths. And we deal with that uh, all the time with people. Number five, there is only what is kind to other people. So there is an absolute truth in deconstructionalism. And that is... Kindness. If, you, if you're holy, you're very kind, right? So you got to be kind, and you got to just let everybody believe what they want to believe. Even if they're wrong, you need to be kind to them. And if you're kind, then you're holy, right? Well, listen, kindness is one of the fruits of the Spirit. But Jesus wasn't kind when he, when he shook his finger at the Pharisees and said, You brood of vipers, you sons of the devil. He wasn't kind when he flipped over the money changers' tables and said, what you're doing is wrong. You're turning the house of God into a den of thieves. Kindness is not the ultimate expression of moral ethics. Amen? But this is what they believe. They believe that kindness is the highest form of holiness. Seeing that there is no truth and kindness is all we have, how dare you be so arrogant and bigoted by insisting that your way of knowing is higher and better or that your truth is higher or greater. You are unkind and evil and you must be destroyed. Can anyone relate to this? 
Like, what's wrong with having a conversation and talking instead of just saying, shutting people down because they believe the scripture? Okay? So what should the church's strategy be in light of this persuasiveness, influence of deconstructionalism? Number one, faith, hope, and love. We need to seek to evaluate or elevate, sorry, the three cardinal virtues of Christianity. That's so important that we do that in this time. The Bible says we're to show forth the virtues of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And I want to say this because when you take away the foundation of the scripture, the foundation of Judeo-Christian ethic, instead of faith, you get fear. Instead of hope, you get hopelessness. Instead of love, you have hatred. When you do away with that foundation of truth, what happens, all of these feelings begin to come up in people and the churches begin to fill up. And I don't know about you, I've been talking to a lot of pastors who are saying their churches are doubling in size because people are coming and saying, I just feel so fearful. I feel so hopeless. I, 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 I need something. There's something I need. They need the foundation of God's word in their life. Amen. And 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 to 5 talks about the day that we're living in. And, and Paul says to Timothy, you should know this, Timothy, that in the last days there will be very difficult times for people will love only themselves and their money. They will be boastful and proud, scoffing at God, disobedient to parents and ungrateful. They will consider nothing sacred. They will be unloving and unforgiving. They will slander others, have no self-control. They will be cruel and hate what is good. They will betray their friends, be reckless, be puffed up with pride, and love pleasure rather than God. They will act religious, but they will reject the power that could make them godly. Stay away from people like that. And so we're being told, how many can see that we're living in a day where we're seeing this happen? Let me see your hands here. Let's be interactive. We see all of this happening. But, but the thing is, as a church, how do, how do we counter this? Well, number one, uh, we, we, we do with faith, hope, and love. we got to show people that, that there, you can have faith in God. There's hope in Jesus Christ. And God's love is unconditional. And you can receive his love. And you can be free. Number two, we have to be honest about our message. And many churches, uh, you know, teach that it's enough just to believe in God without repentance. And what is the problem with that? Well, first of all, repentance is not a bad word. And churches are teaching today because they they don't want people to feel guilty. They teach people that all you have to do is come and say a prayer that you believe in God. You don't have to say, I'm sorry, God. Or if you do repent, you do it once. You don't continue to do it. You're forgiven for all your sins, past, present, and future. Well, let me tell you something. You know, try that with your spouse. <laughs> you know, honey, I told you I loved you 20 years ago. And I said I was sorry when I married you. I said, honey, I'm sorry for everything I'll ever do in the future or in the past. Are you okay with that? And then, you know, I mean, I would have, I'd be on the couch every night. I'd probably have scratches on my face, right? <laughs> Because in relationship, when you do something wrong, you say, I'm sorry, I did something wrong. Uh, you know, forgive me. But we're supposed to be with God. We're supposed, you know, when we have a bad day, how many know we have a bad day and you lose your temper and you get mad at someone or you, you know, you get, you know, you do something stupid. And then just to think like, I'm not going to talk to God about it. Say, God, I shouldn't have done that. Forgive me. Put it under the bridge. You know, that's foolish thinking. 
And, and the thing is, with, with, with repentance, the beautiful thing about repentance, it just means you're turning one direction and going in another direction. You're changing your thinking. And, and, and here's what's missing. In Acts chapter 3, verse 19 to 21, Peter is preaching the first message. How many know if we want to have truth, we've got to go back to the, the blueprint, right? And, and he, he's preaching about, you know, that they have to turn to Jesus and have faith in Jesus. And they're like, what should we do? What should we do? And this is how he responded. He says, now repent of your sins. Say it with me. Of your sins. And turn to God. So the turning to God part is the, is the actual, like, I believe in you. But there has to be repentance. So that your sins will be wiped away. And then here's the key. That times of refreshing will come from the presence of the Lord. And, and when you repent, times of refreshing come. Okay? When my wife and I have an argument and I repent, times of refreshing come. If I don't, it's like times of nagging comes. <laughs> Discontentment, right? I'm just joking. I'm just picking on my wife. Yeah. I'm going to pick on my dad in a few minutes also. But we need to be honest, right? We have to be honest about our message. Our message is, listen, God loves you unconditionally. He has a plan for your life. But you need to repent of your sins. Recognize, listen, I've made mistakes. I repent. You have to understand he died for your sins. He paid a sinner's death. He died on the cross. He rose from the dead. He's your Lord and Savior, right? And that unless you repent and turn your life to Christ, you belong to the enemy, and you could end up in a place called hell, and nobody wants to talk about hell because it's not politically correct, and it doesn't, it, there's no kindness in it. And the whole concept of kindness is we have churches that will not preach the scripture because it doesn't, it's not kind, and if it's not kind, it's not holiness. You know, I had Pastor uh, Chris's kids with me on the boat. I think it was on the boat. And he jumped off beside the motor while the engine was spinning. And I screamed so loud. I was like, Hunter! And, and he just jumped back. And his parents were shocked. Like, I yelled. I was being kind. I, you know, I didn't say, uh, you watch the motor. It could cut your leg off. <laughs> I don't want to offend you, but you're a little bit closer. No, I warned him. And we can't be afraid to warn people, you're going down the wrong path if you continue. The, you know, if you continue and you do this and you have an affair, you're going to destroy your marriage. You're going to destroy, you, you know, it, 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 there's, no, there's no good fruit. And we, we can't warn people because you're unkind. And so we need to be honest about our message that we need to repent and that, you know, give our hearts to Christ and let him forgive us. Number three... We need, to, we need to do more exegesis and less eisegesis. And that's a biblical term about the Word of God. So in other words, being faithful to the text, okay, scriptural fidelity. Preach interpretation before application. This is the problem. A lot of preachers today, especially if you watch people on TV and YouTube that want ratings, they're all talking about application. So they take a scripture and they say, this is how it applies to your life and this is how it will make your life better. And there's a place for that. But if we're not careful, we get away from the interpretation and we try to give them application. And many times we move out of context. Does that make sense? So, for example, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Paul the Apostle was hungry. He was in prison. He, you know, he had been shipwrecked. He was going through a real difficult time. And he said, but 
I can do all things through Christ Jesus. He strengthens me through the trials. And then you see a guy, get an MMA fighter, get in the, in the ring, and he pummels a guy, breaks his nose, right, puts him out. I like MMA, by the way. But he beats him up, and then he stands up and he goes, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So God just strengthened you to pummel a guy, right? So that's out of context. How many see what I'm saying? And we have to be careful that we're giving people the context of why, what the Scripture is saying, not just, not just application. Does that make sense? Number four, we need to communicate on the essentials. You know, the early church was torn apart by endless heresies, so they wrote the creeds to establish the essentials of the faith and um, Christology and numerology and all those things. So here's the thing. What is the essentials? All, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all need a Savior. God so loved the world that he sent his Son to save us of our sins. Holy Spirit lives in us. Eternal life, eternal judgment. All of those, those are the essentials. The non-essentials, for example, would be communion. You know, churches are divided because they do things differently. Like here we have these little cups we pass out, and you peel the top off, you take the bread, and you drink the cup. And I was talking to the Anglican priest there the other day, and he says, yeah, we're going to start uh, doing uh, uh, communion again at the front. And, he go, and I said, oh, that's great. We've been doing it for a while. He goes, yeah, but we do it different. I said, what? He said, yeah, I know how you do it. He said, we have people line up, and then the priest comes. How many have been to an Anglican church? Okay, see your hand. So the priest comes, he gives you a cup, and he drinks first. No, he drinks last. So he gives you the cup, you drink, then he wipes it. The next person drinks, and they're all lined up. Wipe it. Next person drinks, wipes it. Now, for people who have a problem with that, the priest gives you an, uh, another option. So you can take your little bread. Instead of drinking, you can dip it into the juice. And that's a great option. I like that one. So we were at the church. I was with my dad and mom and the, my brothers, and we're at the church. So we went up for communion. We're all lined up, kneeling at the front. And the priest comes with a cup. So somebody takes a drink. He wipes it. Someone takes a drink. He wipes it. And see, I was listening. My dad wasn't listening, but I was listening to the instruction. <laughs> and I had an option. I could dip my bread, and I didn't have to put my mouth on the cup. So this is great. So my dad was right beside me. The cup comes. I take my bread. I dip it. I eat it cup goes to him. He realizes, hey, I want to do that, but the bread was already in his mouth. And he went, put it in the cup, ate it. The next person was in shock and horror. And the rest of the line was not interested in communion that day. They took it reluctantly. But these, I mean, so, so something like how you do communion or how you baptize people, all these kind of things, these are non-essentials. These, these are not essential things. And I think as churches, we need to begin to come together on the essentials of truth and stand together and be a voice in our world. Amen? Because when the church does not ground people in the truth, we leave everyone vulnerable. And we need to ground people in the truth. You know, <clears throat> there's three things you need to be grounded in as a believer. Three areas. Three encounters. Number one, a spirit encounter. You have to have an encounter with the Holy Spirit. And Paul tells the Galatians, he said, did you receive 
the letter again, or did you receive the Spirit? How many know you have to have an encounter with the Holy Spirit? He has to come into your life and change you. But you also need to have a truth encounter. That solidifies why you believe what you believe. And these can come sometimes out of order, but you need all three. Number three, we need to have, the third one is a love encounter. Paul says, I pray that the eyes of your understanding would be open, that you would know how much God loves you. God loves us so much. And so when you have an encounter with his love, you have an encounter with the Spirit of God, and you have an encounter with truth, nobody can shake you. And what's been happening in the last little while, we're seeing these great worship leaders and even pastors, and I don't have to name names, you know who I'm talking, most of you know who I'm talking about, who have denied their faith. You know why? Because they had a spirit encounter, and they came to church and they went to church every Sunday, and they spend 45 minutes worshiping. And they're like, oh, I'm worshiping Jesus, and I'm experiencing the presence of God. And then when they were challenged on truth, why do you believe that it was the presence of God? Or why do you believe that you're saved? I don't know. It just feels good to be in the presence of God. Why do you believe what you believe? I don't know. It just feels good. And how many know when you don't have your foundation in the Word of God and the truth of God, you can have all the spirit encounter you want? but you'll be shaken. Amen? So we need all three. We need a spirit encounter, we need a truth encounter, and we need a life encounter. So God is so good. Amen? So in the, in the, in the weeks to come, what I want to do is really focus on the truth. I want to take you guys back and show you why we had the Nician Creed and how the canonization of the scripture happened and why you can trust the word of God, why Christians gave up their life and died for the Bible. They didn't because it was flippant. They died because they realized it was truth and they had evidence that it was truth. And I want to share that with you so that when your faith is challenged, you'll be able to say, this is why I believe what I believe. It's not just about of an experience. It, 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 I have this grounded in me and I have an understanding. Amen? Why don't we stand? Father, I pray for every person in, under the sound of my voice, whether they're on live stream or they're here in person, God. I thank you, Father, that we are living in a time uh, where it's an exciting time because even as it's dark out and people are confused, there's faith, there's love, and there's hope in the kingdom of God. And Father, I pray, God, that you'd give us opportunity to share our faith, give us opportunity uh, to stand for what is right. In Jesus' name, speak to us this week. Give us opportunities this week in Jesus' name. And if you're in this place right now with every head bowed, every eye closed, or you're watching us online and you say, I don't know if I was to die today that I would go to see Jesus, that I would be saved. I don't have a relationship. I don't have a relationship with God, and I don't even know too much about this, but I, I feel what you're saying is true, and I want to have a relationship with God today. I want to admit that I have made mistakes and I'm willing to yield that to God. If that's you, just lift your hand. I want to pray with you in this place. Any hands? Okay. I see a couple hands. Anybody else? Okay. And if you're online and you're raising your hand, God sees you where you are. I want you to pray this with me. Say, Heavenly Father, thank you for sending Jesus to die for my sins. I ask you to come and live in me. Be the Lord of my life. Change me from the inside out. And I surrender my life to you. In Jesus' name, amen.
awesome. And if you said that prayer for the first time and you meant it from the heart, God just connects. He sends, he sends his Holy Spirit to connect with your spirit. And the Bible says you become children of God. That's an awesome, awesome thing. Well, you guys be blessed this week. Enjoy yourselves. And we'll see you next week. Thank you for listening. We hope that you enjoyed our message. If you are in the Quinty West area, we would love to have you visit us on Sunday morning at 24 Dundas Street West, Trenton, Ontario. Check out our service times on our website at atthecrossroads.ca.